0: The passage that we're going to be looking at this morning comes from Romans chapter 3. You could uh, follow on your own bulletins. You could read in your own Bibles. And then we will recite together the passage we've been memorizing from Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Let me ask you if you're able, if you'd please stand. Uh, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 8. Let me read this aloud. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now let me ask if you would turn your attention to Romans chapter 3 verse 10. We are working on memorizing these passages together. Next week will be the last week for this particular passage and then we will begin in Romans chapter 6. So would you read aloud with me from Romans 3.10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Please be seated and join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that you would open our hearts, that we would hear your word and receive it, that we would be sanctified, made more like your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you, O Lord God, would receive the glory. We thank you for speaking by your Spirit Through the Apostle Paul to us, and we pray, Lord God, that you would be glorified in everything that we say and do this morning. In your name we ask all of this. Amen. As we open up chapter 3, I have to say, I think it is hard to clearly communicate just how extraordinary are the things that Paul has been saying in Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3. It is hard to to communicate to us just how revolutionary, how extraordinary, how unheard of are the things that he is saying. And, and we know from the audience that he's speaking to and the things that we can read about them, we know that this simply is not the way that they would have thought about their identity in God and who God was. And so these things are striking them at this moment as sort of, Uh, out of the ordinary as something they weren't expecting from the Apostle Paul. This morning, as he works through the beginnings of uh, Romans chapter 3, essentially he is challenging a preconceived mindset of the Jewish hearer that goes something like this. Now, last week we, we talked about the covenant of works and of grace. And if you weren't here last week, you need to go back and listen to that sermon. Because last week we talked about in Romans chapter 2 how these were the two controlling paradigms through which we understand the epistle. And the mindset of the Jewish hearer is really that there's a third way. Okay, So this is the third way and it would be for those who are of the seed of Abraham. That's a common phrase that is used in this epistle and for those that Paul was speaking to, for them, they are of the bloodline of Abraham. They have administered and received the sign of circumcision. The law is in their possession and it is these things that they believe ultimately lead to life. The question that Paul is wrestling with before them is ultimately, actually, what do these things lead to? Okay, And Paul is constantly challenging those preconceived notions in their mind, right? As we go through this epistle, especially in these first few chapters, one of the things that Paul is doing is he is saying to the Jews, we are using the same words, we are speaking the same phrases, but we mean two entirely different things when we say these things. That's why last week he could end by saying, a Jew is not really a Jew, a Jew outwardly is not really a Jew inwardly, and that will be one of Paul's continuing arguments. And you've, you probably understand the scenario that he's in. You've had conversations where you're saying one thing and the other person's saying the same exact thing, but you mean two tar- entirely different things, right? I was thinking about this last night and how, what does it look like in my life. We have, maybe a few times each year, we have a conversation that goes like this. My wife will be leaving maybe for the day or for a, a few days on a vacation or whatever she's doing, going to visit family, and she will say to me, while I'm gone, will you please clean the house? Okay, And, and she'll say that. And um, I say, of course, I will clean the house while you're gone. And so uh, as she leaves, and I think, uh, okay, this is what it means to clean the house. I'll straighten up the pillows on the couch, and I'll make sure that the, that the clutter gets picked up a little bit. Maybe wash the dishes and fold some clothes, and the house is clean. And she'll get back, and she'll say, You haven't cleaned the house like I asked you to clean the house. And I say, what do you mean? Of course I clean the house. no, cleaning the house, it means mopping the floors and scrubbing the bathrooms and dusting the shelves, and of course, I haven't done any of that, okay? We are speaking the same things, but we mean two entirely different things. That's what Paul is saying to his Jewish hearers this morning. Yeah, we're using the same words, Israelite, Jew, people of God. We mean two entirely different things, Okay. And what happens in chapter 3, you begin reading chapter 3, the conversation changes. Paul is no longer speaking at us. He actually is engaging in a hypothetical dialogue, right? It's a conversation. Question and answer. Question and answer. And if you want to kind of rightly think about this dialogue, one commentator put it like this. They said, this is a conversation that is between Paul the Jew and Paul the Christian. And I, and I like thinking of this conversation in those terms It is Saul, before he encounters Christ on the road to Damascus, and Paul, the Christian, Saul asking the questions, representing the Jewish hearer, and Paul, the apostle, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, responding to the questions. The questions that will be posed at the beginning of chapter 3 are three apparent contradictions And the work, the mind, and the operation of God in this world. Three apparent contradictions that Paul will answer. Now, let me give you a warning. In the first eight verses of chapter three, really, Paul doesn't answer these contradictions. Okay? As a matter of fact, you may get to verse eight and say, well, that's not very satisfying to me at all. He is moving towards answering these questions in more detail in chapter six and in chapters nine through eleven. Okay? But there's something more that he's doing this morning that we will get to, and I'll highlight that at the end. But let me just talk about the three apparent contradictions that will be raised and answered by the Apostle Paul. The first one comes in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Okay, That's the first question that Saul is asking Paul. What advantage has the Jew, or what value is circumcision? You see where this is coming from. We have seen in chapters 1 and 2, and we will see in the rest of chapter 3, that Paul's making the argument that there is no one who is righteous. All are under condemnation. And so the the Jew who has received the promises of God, who has functionally been living as the people of God, will say to the Apostle Paul, well, if that's true, if we're all under condemnation, then what advantage do we have, really? As a matter of fact, verse 1 if you were to give a more wooden translation of verse 1, it would read like this. Then what superiority has the Jew? Then how are we better at all? Then, then what is there about us that has set us apart? For the scriptures seem to indicate that we have been set apart. How are we any better off than the Gentiles? We all stand under condemnation, okay? That's the first apparent contradiction that Saul will ask Paul. Now look at how Paul answers the question, much in every way. That is to say there are many advantages to being a Jew, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, okay? And you might be thinking, okay, he just said there's many advantages to being a Jew, but he just gave one. What does he mean? Why doesn't he give us more? Many people kind of Um, laughingly talk about the Apostle Paul at this moment, he appears to be very much like a modern preacher who asks a question, begins to answer his question, but gets on a side side tangent where he, for the next seven chapters or six chapters, will speak about what he means. Then he comes back in chapter 9 and he gives us a list of things that are actually advantageous to the Jew, And, and there he explains it. He says, uh, the Jew has sonship, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the worship, and the promises, and the patriarchs, and of their race, according to the flesh, came Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Those are some of the advantages that the Jew has And he's distinguishing, yeah, of course, these things have not given you salvation. And as far as it concerns the condemnation of God, you are in the same boat as the Gentile, but what advantage do you have? Many advantages. Look at the one that he does give here. To the Jews were entrusted the oracles of God. That is Paul's way of saying the Scriptures have been given to you. Through the mouth of the prophets, the Scriptures have been given to you. That's one of the advantages you have. Okay, and we, we might not realize how big of a deal that is, right, how big of an advantage that is if, if we don't think for a second about the great advantage it is to have the Word of God. This often comes up about 14 times a year in, in the church when we baptize infants, and many of you not coming from backgrounds where babies are baptized, you will say, we'll have a conversation after the service, and you will say, why do you baptize babies, they don't have faith, they're not saved, and I will say, amen, right? preach it. Uh, they're not, I know that. And, and then you will inevitably say, well then, uh, what do you mean they're part of the covenant family? And what advantage is there to baptizing your babies? And I will say, well, the Apostle Paul would say, much in every way, okay? And we could go through that list, and we could talk about the advantages. One of, what we talk about one of the advantages of receiving the sign, being welcomed into the covenant community, is that to our children, They receive the oracles of God, the word of God, right? And that, the Bible will spell out, is is no small deal. They will hear it in the homes. They will hear it in church, in the preaching of the word. It will be communicated to them in in Sunday school classes that the the believers in this congregation who commit, commit to assisting the parents in the nurture and the admonition of this child will impart to them the Word of God, and it will not depart from them easily, and they will grow to hear the Word and then apply it when they begin to understand their own sin and the righteousness of God. How beautiful that is, and how amazing it is for the children in our congregation to be recipients of such a promise. And if you think it's a big deal for us, just uh, just think how big of a deal it was for this group of people more than 2,000 years ago, right, who who having uh, the Word of God maybe passed down by word of mouth, a few copies of it written, that distinguished them greatly from the peoples around them who had no copies of the written Word of God, who hadn't committed it to memory, who had no inclination of it. This greatly distinguished the people of Israel, and it could be said, well, you have some great advantages. One of them being to you has been entrusted the Word of God. So that's Paul's first answer to Saul's First question on the apparent contradictions of God here. Now listen, what does he say? He moves on. Second apparent contradiction. Uh, well, in verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? You see what Paul's saying. He, in this verse, he introduces a very important word, a controlling word for the epistle to the Romans. It's the Greek word pistuo. I'll I'll write it up here because I think it's really important, okay? It comes up often in this epistle to the Romans is the Greek word pistua. We've seen it once or twice. It will come to define Paul's soteriology, his view of salvation through the epistle to the Romans. It's the Greek word that means to have faith or to believe. As often as Paul uses it in Romans, I would imagine that those who are hearing this epistle likely wouldn't have considered it to be as big of a deal as the Apostle Paul does, okay? And that is because, as we mentioned last week, the covenant of grace not received by obedience like the covenant of works is received by faith. This will be the emphasis of Paul's argument to the Jews and the Gentiles, but this especially will ring true with the Jews, okay? This is kind of rocking the world all at the same time. So Pistuo, if you look at the verse, verse 3, Then, in light of everything we know about Romans, you could rightly read that verse like this. What if some were unbelievers? What if some were unbelievers, right? Would their unbelief or would their lack of faith nullify the faithfulness of God or the promises of God? And you can see where this argument is going. Listen, I I don't want to... Take all the time to explain all of this, but the, the mindset of the Jew who was receiving Paul's letter would have been that the seed of Abraham represents the history of the people of God. Okay? Same terms, different meaning. And they would have said, from Adam, well, look at that. From Adam, all the way through, we ended with Moses last week, and they would have taken that history from Moses to the prophets and David, and they would have traced it all the way to themselves. They would say, that's the history of the people of God. And if you remember last week, we included many names from Hebrews 11. There were names we left out. Adam and Eve were left off the list last week. We left off Cain, okay? Uh, we left off, we talked about Isaac. We didn't talk about Ishmael. We talked about Noah. We didn't talk about the sons of Noah, okay? We talked about Jacob. We didn't talk about Esau, Okay? We talked about Joseph. We didn't talk about Joseph's brothers, right? And the list goes on. The question that is being posed by Saul to Paul is, what if some of those who we have conceived of as the people of God, what if some of those were unbelievers? What if they didn't follow God by faith, okay? If some of the seed of Abraham trusted him like Abel and Enoch and Noah And Jacob, if they trusted him by faith and they were brought under the covenant of grace and they received life, what if some others did not? What if in their unbelief under the covenant of works because of the fall into sin, what if they came under the condemnation and wrath of God that leads not to life but to death? Does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? And you see why they're asking that question, right? God makes all these promises to the people of God and they've conceived of this as the seed of Abraham and if, if, if they don't believe then does this nullify the promises of God? Listen to what Justin Martyr said about the Jews at this time. He said they suppose that to them universally who are of the seed of Abraham, no matter how sinful and disobedient to God they may be, the eternal kingdom shall be given to them. And so there's a, there's a problem that must be presented and answered an apparent contradiction. If God had made these promises to them and yet some were unbelievers does it nullify the faithfulness of God? Look at what Paul says in verse 4. By no means. The King James Version probably better translates this two-word phrase. The King James Version says, God forbid it. Okay, so it's not like, no, no, that's not right. It's like, this. don't even say that. That's impossible. impossible. You cannot nullify the faithfulness of God. And then look at what he says. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. I love that phrase. You know what it really means if you just take it as it's written? It really means God is right and you're all wrong, okay? You take all the wisdom of all the people in the world and you add it up and you think you've understood God, but you know what? The reality is God's right, you're wrong, okay? And I mentioned this like a month ago and I'll keep saying it because it's true in the book of Romans. The reality is if we will not conform our minds and desires to the truth, we will conform the truth to our minds and desires, okay? The admonishment of the Apostle Paul is conform your minds to the truth. God is right and we are all liars. Conform your minds to the truth of God. It is true. He is faithful. And then he quotes from Psalm 51. He quotes from Psalm 51 here. That's a psalm where David in verse 4 is essentially saying, God you have judged me for my sin and your faithfulness is true even in your judgment. Okay. Uh, we don't have time to dissect all of this argument but Essentially, the Apostle Paul is saying, yeah, look, some of these who are of the seed of Abraham, they did not have faith and came, uh, the, uh, existed under the covenant of works. They were disobedient and ultimately suffered the condemnation of God. And this is true of some of you. As a matter of fact, he will say in Romans 9 through 11, it's not true of some of you. It's true of many of you. That's what he's going to say in 9, 10, and 11. It's true of many of you, okay? And yet, God is faithful. It is true. Now, if you're wondering, okay, that's not a great explanation for me. I said, these aren't great explanations. We will get better explanations in Romans 9 through 11 to satisfy the, the mind of the person. Say, Wait, wait, wait. I don't understand how God is faithful even in that. It will come Romans 9 through 11. Let me give you the third objection. It comes in verse 5. But if, in our, unrighteousness, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is, unrighteousness, uh, is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I love what Paul says. I I speak in a human way. I just want you to know, it's not what I think. Okay, I'm just saying in a human way, here's an argument, but by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Do you see what the argument is? It's a very simple argument. It goes like this, if many who are of the seed of Abraham don't have faith, but they continue in unbelief, and God judges them for their unbelief, for their disobedience, and if that means that yet God is faithful, and it's for his glory and his good, then isn't that like a good thing? It, doesn't our unbelief actually work out a good thing? And then why would God judge us, okay? Those two things don't make sense in our minds, and again, if you're looking for the fuller answers, the fuller answer to this question is coming in Romans 6. We're going to memorize that soon, Okay. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? May it never be. For we who died to sin, how can we still live in it? And that's the introduction to the answer that is posed here. But it's a really good question. Right? If in our unrighteousness, God is yet glorified, then why would he condemn us? Why would he judge us? Isn't that for his good? Yes, it's for his good. Yet he still condemns us. Both things will be true. We'll talk about it in Romans 6, but look how Paul ends it. He says, why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, and he, and he simply ends by saying, their condemnation is just. Okay? Their condemnation is just. Here's what I want to do. We're not going to answer these questions this morning, but I want to I I leave you with this question. Why does the Apostle Paul do this at the beginning of Romans chapter 3? Why does he ask questions To which it appears at this moment, he's not going to provide any answers. I I actually think it's probably not for the reasons we think. We might open Romans 3 and think, okay, he's asking these hard questions, and he's going to answer it, but we don't get the answers. And so we're like, well, why doesn't Paul explain himself? I feel like I, I need an explanation here, okay? If you've ever asked hard questions of God, I can guarantee you these are not the answers that will satisfy your curiosity. Essentially what Paul says in Romans 3 is this. God is who God is. Deal with it. You feel that? Right? That's the way he's answering the question. God is who God is. Deal with it. And if you've ever wondered, why does God do this but not that? And how does God's justice and mercy fit together? And why does God say this but it doesn't seem like that? I imagine that it's the least satisfying answer ever for you to hear, God is who God is. Deal with it. Two weeks when Michael Gambola speaks about those who are deconstructing their faith, I imagine he's not going to say, say to them, God is who God is, deal with it. Not, not the right way to handle the situation, I imagine. So why does Paul do this here? We have, it's very simple, actually. We have to have a better understanding of the flow of the entire epistle. Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, I'll put them all together. First five chapters of Romans Paul's doing one thing. He's preparing the soil. He's preparing our minds. He's preparing our hearts. He's getting us ready for the presentation of the gospel, and that's what's happening here, okay? Many people have put it like this. They say, uh, we we can't understand the good news until we've understood the bad news, right? You've heard that phrase before. That is what Paul is doing here. And in chapter 3, he is taking these people who he considers his kinsmen, right, Of the seed of Abraham, born a Jew. And Paul will talk about that often. He's taking his kinsmen and he's exposing in them all their false assurances. Right? You have trusted that you have been of the seed of Abraham, that you have received the sign of circumcision, that you have obeyed the law, and you think those things lead unto life. Romans 1, 2, and 3 have been Paul saying, look at them, they will not bring life. Do you really think that if you're circumcised, that's going to get you into heaven? Just think about it for a second. Do you really think that you can live according to the law? Just think about it for a second. And he's exposing false assurances in the minds of his listeners. And then he moves in chapter 3, I think, to bring a sense of despair to those who are listening. A sense of despondence and hopelessness. Those things won't give you hope. Those things won't give you hope. Those things won't give you hope. And oh, you think there's a contradiction in the mind of God. God is who God is, deal with it. That they might be, when they get to verse 8, and then it's going to happen in verses 10 through 20, you've just been memorizing those verses, right? That they might be at the end of chapter 3 saying, woe is me, I have no hope. Everything that I thought brought life only brings death. What shall I do? That's what's happening in chapter 3. That's why we get God is who God is, deal with it. So let me tell you this. This is what I think it means for us, okay? We need to follow the same sort of process laid out before us in the epistle to the Romans. We need to be those who just as well as sharing the good news will share the bad news with those that we love and know, okay? We need to be those who are unafraid to speak about the wrath and condemnation of God or unafraid to speak about the things in our lives that we think give us hope and assurance, to say to those that we love, no, no, that that won't save you. The prayer that you thought you said that was all you needed to do, the thing that you were, the sign that you received, how you were baptized as a child, but you've not continued in faith, that won't save you. The thing that you're trusting in in this world, that gives you no hope. Okay, And as the apostle Paul does, I think we need to, with those that we love, we need to let them sit in those things for a while. I don't know what that looks like exactly, but I think it does look like for those that we love, walking them through everything we've just read in Romans and just saying, just, just rest on that. And let's talk about that. And that may be a week or maybe months or maybe years, but just rest on that. It, it is cultivating a sense of despair, and let me tell you why that's important. Paul is not creating a sense of despair. He's actually taking the despair that everyone's in, and he's just bringing it to the forefront of their minds. Like, this is who you are. You may not know it, but I just want you to know, this is who you are. We ought to, as we speak with those in the world who we love and we know who need the gospel of Jesus Christ, we ought not to mix up politeness and impoliteness with right and wrong, Right? And we say, I can't say that. That's impolite. I, maybe I ought to be quiet on the issue. We're talking about eternal matters, right? I think the Apostle Paul would encourage us and exhort us, <laughs> admonish us to share the reality of the condemnation of God that all are condemned. There is no unrighteous, no, not One that would lead to a sense of despair, and despair is the fertile soil for the reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That those who we know and love would hear this, and as it moves them to despair, we, like the Apostle Paul, would say to them, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom you and I are the foremost. That's where Paul's going in this epistle to the Romans. That's why he asked these questions at the beginning of chapter 3, and you see, that's the good news, but it's only the good news because this is the bad news, and the bad news must be seen to understand the value, the worth, the integrity, the advantage of the good news through Jesus Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have saved us by grace, through faith, not of works. We ask you this morning that as we continue on the service and we receive the Lord's Supper, may you confirm to our hearts through the sacrament of communion what we have now heard through the preaching of your word. And may you, O Lord God, be glorified, honored, lifted up, and may we be sanctified by your Spirit through these things. We love you. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is our only hope. It is in his name we pray. Amen.